Welcome back, listeners, to a new episode of The New Standard. As always, I have my partner in crime to my left, Neil Kulong. What's up, Neil, on this Thursday morning? It's been a, a crazy, hectic morning. I had a, a new computer shipped to me yesterday from the good folks at Gannett. And for some reason, the camera doesn't activate. So I had to break out the old computer again from the box and plug it in. Hence the reason we are a little late. It was on me, people. You can blame me for that. That's fine. I will refund you every cent that you are spending to watch the show. What type, what type, what type of new computer, if I can ask and bore <clears throat> listeners real quick? Uh, a PC. That's oh. as deep as I go. Yeah. <laughs> Couldn't tell you otherwise. <laughs> no, I don't have a choice. No, I can't get a Mac. Yes, I'm sure there are better computers out there. <laughs> I'm not going to get one of them. I'm not worth that much. Um, it works fine. I don't improve looks wise. My voice doesn't sound better on a, on a better machine anyway. I can assure you of that. So what you see is what you get here, Lance. Happy Thursday, though. I'm excited to well, be here. I, I will say that the camera looks better and no, not to Paul Charlie's. I have a Mac, but it is what it is. But we want to thank you guys for joining us this early on this Thursday morning, for me, of course, it's 6 a.m. on 9 o'clock for you guys joining the show. Thank you, as always. Hopefully, we're going to bring you a fantastic program. Going to cut the sponsors down just a bit so we can just jump into this show. Want to give a big shout-out to my cousin Steven's new company, HighBarApparel.com. We'll put the information on the YouTube link and all of the social media associated with him. Also, if you want to check out the program, it is available on all podcast platforms. I'm starting to be a little bit more interactive on Twitter, so you can find me with some conversations there. Pick up the Rudy uh, Reyes for suggesting that to me. Uh, and, and Neil is always on Twitter interacting with fans. I don't know how Neil does it, but I'm going to have to just warm to it and do some more. Also, you can find a show on any podcast platform. So what's up, big mail? Sup to you. And what's up to everybody? Before we jump into the program, I think it's necessary we speak pretty briefly to the John Gruden issues. I'll kick that off and give my comments, and then I'll toss it to you, Neil. And then we're going to jump into news, notes, and injuries. We're going to check out Neil's Broncos recap number, my recap number. We'll break down the Seattle game, and then we'll give some predictions. Um, in terms of the, the John Gruden issue, uh, you know, a lot has been said. Um, I, I firmly agree with the decision of the Los Angeles, oh, excuse me, I was going to say Los Angeles Raiders, then I was going to say Las Vegas Raiders, then Oakland Raiders, just Raiders. I agree with the decision of the Raiders. Um, th there's no statute of limitation on misogyny, uh, bigotry, racism, and homophobia. I mean, John Gruden hit all of them. Um you just can't represent an organization that can't be the face of your organization and you can't have a man represent your organization who has those views. It's I'm not going to say a new day in time or any of that. It's just a time in which having those views is much more punitive. Uh, you, you just can't get away with it anymore. And um, I, I think the Raiders did the right thing. So uh, what's your thoughts on that, Neil? Um, obviously, I agree with that. And I, I would say this from my perspective, um, working in media, I'm responsible for 34 websites across a network. And I have 
uh, a, a very significant brand that's run by people that take that brand very seriously for uh, understandable reasons. I respect that. I, I appreciate the job that I have to do. When news like that breaks at eight o'clock Eastern, right before the start of a game, um, I get pretty nervous. It's really, a, a, these are difficult stories to cover. They require a, a high level of professionalism and uh, to some degree in most areas, uh, objectivity. Now, I'll say this without boring everybody too much. Objectivity is not exactly what you think that it is when it comes to media. You need to represent the brand that you work for and you need to represent the fairness of the story overall. And in this case, I felt the issue was the lack of representation uh, for the people that Gruden was talking about in those emails. I think it's a marginalized group. I think it's one that is probably, uh, at least as far as the, the gay community goes, underrepresented in a, in a knowing way in the NFL. I think that's the mildest way to say it. It's taken that long for at least one player to openly say to the public that he's gay. And of course, he happens to be on the Raiders, coached formerly by John Gruden. For all of that to come into play in the manner that it did, my immediate thought was he's gone. There's no way he's able to keep his job. And going over all the scenarios that might come out from all of it, Gruden resigning was the best thing that he could have done. I'm in no way, shape, or form praising him or commendating him for that. The reality is his time was up, and it's we may never know whose real decision it was for him to, to say that he is resigning, but that was the best thing that could have happened, um, probably should have happened before the game on Sunday. It didn't. They have to move on. They've got a gigantic mess in front of them. And this is exactly why it is critically important that we remember, everybody remembers, marginalized groups cannot be treated as such. People have to be given equal opportunities. And to do that, Lance, in my opinion, we need to educate people on what an equal opportunity is. Because the issue that I have with John Gruden, and I, I don't think anybody can disagree with me, you can't read over those emails. You can't hear what he said and think that he fairly applied uh, it, it, a, a, a single standard of um, credibility, of decision making. None of that can be considered fair and equal. There's no way that he did that. You have that stain on the league now, and that goes on to every single other coach in this game. Most notably for us, Mike Tomlin, not a, a guy that you can accuse of not being a champion of diversity. What about Brandon Staley? What Brandon Staley of the Chargers said yesterday moved me. I thought that was an incredible message to send to everybody. And what we are seeing really is, is a seismic shift in personality from the old school, old guard NFL to what it's merging into today. And if uh, somebody like John Gruden said that 10 years ago, he needed to be gone 10 years ago. And I think today's uh, society views that in, in a much more proactive way than they used to. It's a significant problem in the NFL. It's been bubbling just underneath the surface for too long. And now there's, there's plain ev evidence of it. How far, how far down does this go? What else is happening? That's the question to ask with all the emails that they found uh, in the investigation on the Washington football team, on owner Dan Snyder, on uh, team president, Bruce Allen, all of these things are coming out now. How far down the line is this going to go? But I am choosing to view this as a, a positive thing for the league because you can root out the actual 
cause of a lot of this stuff. You can't say that Gruden it, it was a champion of, of any sort of diversity at all. And that's exactly the problem. The reason the numbers in coaching hiring is, is as far off as it is, is because people continue to lean on an old model that needs to be changed. And if this is one exactly. step in that direction, then good. I'm glad. Yeah, I think to 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 put a cap to it and, and a bow on it, you know, just to echo what you just said is it illustrates and illuminates, you know, what many people who look like me have always felt that there's a good old boy network and it put a spotlight um, on it. And, and that's always been my fear, you know, as a member of corporate America in different places is that. You know, there's some nefarious group of guys in the background making these decisions that have these feelings. And so I'm glad he was exposed. I'm glad it came out. Um, you know, unfortunately for the players, Nassip in particular, you know, I'm sure he has some interesting. He's been thinking a lot of different things. Unfortunately for the Raiders, um, this is a problem that they have to deal with. But let's move forward and let's jump into the big injury. Um, and you talked about it with me a little bit on, on text um, last night. Of course, the big injury issue for the Pittsburgh Steelers this week, of course, is Juju Smith-Schuster undergoing surgery in which many think is going to be a season-ending surgery. Uh, briefly describe what you were talking to me about on the text message, and then we'll jump into another question. Is this last Juju's last game as a Steeler? But briefly describe to the listeners what you were trying to explain to me last night on why Juju Smith-Schuster, I don't think officially has been placed on IR. No, the reason Juju Smith-Schuster is on the injury report as not having practiced, and that's probably because he was sedated and undergoing surgery at the time of practice, is they have not placed him on injured reserve yet. They made a move on, on the practice squad to bring in uh, former second-round pick Anthony Miller, which I think is hilarious that uh, – We'll continue to label him a former second round pick. We didn't label Dante Moncrief a former second round pick. Uh, wow. it, it, Miller seems to be moving down that trail. There's a reason why he's bouncing from team to team. I don't. He's not a solution to anything for the Steelers. Uh, he's a body. He's there. But the, the point is, they didn't make a move with Juju yet. Why did they not put him on injured reserve? The Steelers have kind of a, a thing with this. What they like to do is save that roster spot. Um, and kind of create a, a champion versus challenger model within their practices. They bring in guys to essentially compete. Who's going to get this spot? If they didn't put Juju on injured reserve on, on Monday or Tuesday, it means really they probably have the guy that they have in mind for that roster spot, or they can't quite decide between two or three of them, and they want to give them the week to practice. Also, what it does is it gives them a chance to evaluate what they would need that roster spot for. You've got two other receivers on this list. One didn't play, or neither of them played. Sorry. Uh, James Washington did not play last week. Um, he was limited with a groin injury in, in Wednesday's practice. Cam Sutton, <clears throat> oh my God, I can't talk today, Lance. Chase Claypool was limited with uh, the same hamstring injury. I think he was hobbled by last week, but he was able to play. They're not 100% sure what they're going to do with the wide receiver position. That would be my guess. Anthony Miller comes in. He probably has to, to wait a bit to get in for COVID protocols. They're not sure what they have with that. Maybe they have their eye on somebody else that they're looking to sign. Maybe going really far down the line, they have a potential trade that they're working on. Whatever the point is, uh, Juju is not on, on injured reserve. He's clearly not going to play this weekend. So it's a matter of time until they do that. 
what move they're going to make in concert with that is the question. And I don't know. It, it's it's up in the air. They could go a lot of different ways. But what this really means is they're not set in some way, shape or form. And uh, prop, that transaction is probably going to come on Friday when you know they, they have the least amount of time to do that. And while not tipping their hand to Seattle, uh, exactly what they're going to do. I know that seems weird, but coaches live and breathe by the idea of not uh, overplaying their hand, not going out of their way to tell their opponent exactly what they're going to do. The fact that they're not doing it, though, suggests that there is some type of strategic benefit to them to not make the move because clearly Juju does not need to be on the roster. Clearly they're not going to go into Sunday night's game with 52 players on their roster. They're going to make a move at, at some point here. The question is who and for what reason. And it's something to, to monitor as we go through the week. Now, in terms of the other question pertaining to Juju, and we'll just talk mostly about Juju in terms of the injuries, because I don't think there's any other player of note on the Pittsburgh Steelers that will be out potentially on Sunday or correct me if I'm wrong, Neil. I, I don't think so. A lot of this is kind of the same. Um, Cam Sutton returned to practice. That's a good thing. Trey Turner uh, was given a Veterans Day off. Ben is again listed as uh, as having not practiced in a mark an injury of his pec and his hip, but he wouldn't practice on Wednesday anyway. Melvin Melvin Ingram was given what's typically known as the Veterans Day off. They mark it as not injury related. Trey Turner and Ingram had that distinction. Uh, I wouldn't you know nothing to worry about there. Uh, the fact James Washington was limited in practice probably makes him more of the question mark for anybody. But uh, Devin Bush returned fully to practice, which means pretty much he's going to play, barring a setback. Uh, Carlos Davis returned on a limited basis as well. He's missed the last two, maybe three weeks now. I'm not sure. Uh, Cam Hayward, again, is listed as uh, limited in that first day with the same neck injury that he had last week, and nothing really suggests he won't go. I think he started off the same way last week. Now let's get to the question of Juju being a Steeler next year. Um, I, I think that was his last play as a Steeler, unfortunately. Um, and, and Double H is hilarious. The groins are still healing. <laughs> Getting our groins back, baby. Here we go. <laughs> Getting our groins activated. Let's make a yes. list of who has not suffered the plague of the groin injury in 2021 yet. <laughs> Double that, H list might, just that list might be shorter at this point. He just pulled his phalange groin when he typed that. <laughs> um, he pulled his groin of his phalange. Um, but I don't think Juju – I think, unfortunately, I think this is Juju's last game as a Pittsburgh Steeler. And and if I were Juju, it would be my last game as well. If James Washington had issues with his role as a wide receiver in his wide receiver core, what do you think Juju – is thinking Juju was converted essentially to a running back this year. I mean, I'm just really, I mean, I know somebody took me to task on Twitter in terms of depth of target for Juju. Um, but I, I, I can't really recall, you know, anything vertical for Juju. I mean, I just, Juju didn't feel like a wide receiver. He found, he, he felt like he was a tight end this year. Um, you saw him on end of rounds. I mean, it was just weird. His role was very undefined, or, or should I say, as I wrote on Twitter, it was very murky. So my thought is, just from a football perspective, if you take Juju's love of Pittsburgh out of it, there's no way in the world I would want to return if I were Juju, even if the Steelers wanted me to return. So I don't think Juju is going to play anymore as a Steeler. Unfortunately, I think 
Juju will probably, unfortunately, be most remembered for uh, his fumble in New Orleans. But I think this is Juju. I think that was Juju's last game. What's your thoughts? Um, I would say it like this: the Steelers signed Juju to what was essentially a one-year contract, but it was a void-year deal. What that means is he is technically under contract through, uh, I think, a couple days before the start of the new league year. What that means is on that day, his contract voids out. Right. He still has $5.6 million in uh, unaccounted bonus money, which is not money that he's been paid. He's making that money now. That's how they got his salary up to uh, $8 million this season without having it all go on the cap. But when that contract voids, all $5.6 million of that hits th- that year's cap. So when he voids, he's he has a dead charge of $5.6 million. I felt at the time, and I, I said this the entire offseason, it made no sense for the Steelers to sign Juju on, on an extension. I didn't see that happening. I also thought his worth was a bit more in the market than it ended up being. What we heard, and we can't confirm this, but it's enough to to feel solid with, we heard he had multiple teams coming in around that $8 million valuation level. Nobody really gave him a a multi-year offer, though, and I think that's a big part of why he wanted to come back to Pittsburgh. If Pittsburgh lets that contract void now, they get hit with that dead money. I thought at the time it's also because it's $5.6 million over four years, which somebody do the math. I'm not a math major. It's like $1.2 million a year. Um, 1.4. 1.4 million per each of these four years. You can still sign a player to an extension and have those dead charges go into the years of the extension. I thought the Steelers, what they were doing, and it was really shrewd of them to do it, was setting up an extension for Juju for next year when they had more money. They could get him on this low valuation now, this $8 million mark now, which we thought was probably under expectation um, in 2020, the year of the reduced cap. If they sign him to an extension, it's not costing them all that much. And in the end, they got a year on what could be a total of a a, a six-year contract, uh, starting with the first year at an $8 million valuation. If that goes up to 12 in the next five years, you got yourself a pretty nice deal. There's no way Mm -hmm. he can justify an increase in salary now, not not with what he did. And that's why, to your point, my very long-winded point, I can't see a way in the world why Juju would want to come back. Keep in mind, not only was he pretty severely injured on a running play. It was his second running play of the game. It was yes. the what, second quarter. He, he had very few targets. He ran. I, I've been calling him the team's second tight end all season. I'm not even sure who the first tight end is. Juju might've been the first tight end. Listen to this, Lance. I'm, I am going to, I'll find another number, but I'm going to rob the one that I have now. Right now, tight end, Zach Gentry, average yards per catch, seven. Tight end, Eric Ebron, average yards per catch, 7.4. Juju Smith-Schuster, 8.6. Pat Frymuth, I lost him, 9.1. Juju ran tight end routes. I'm not sure who really on the team is running receiver routes outside of Claypool, and Johnson will will make up for that for, for his absence. But by and large, they're not moving the ball down the field a whole lot, and in that offense, Juju still wasn't getting the ball much. It's a contract year for him. It was a contract year for him last year. He didn't get the ball in the last 20 games that he played. Why would he want to stay here? He's he's not going to come back. Um, I, I don't think even the team necessarily wants him back. I think they'll take a, a bargain if they get one. But for Juju, I think he's going to prize 
opportunities to catch the ball down the field a little bit more than he's going to 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 uh choosing my words carefully here embrace the the love of the city of pittsburgh that he claims to have i'm too old and bitter lance to really buy into all that crap whatever i'm sure he loves pittsburgh because pittsburgh's paying him he's not going to go out of his way to lose the minds and hearts of the fans by saying he hates it here i'm not saying that he does but it's not a significant uh, factor in his decision anymore. Somebody else is going to pay him something and they're going to give him an opportunity. And the first thing he's going to say now, even before money is where am I going to get the ball? How often am I going to get the ball? If I sign a short contract, which I have to now because I've done Jack over the last two years because of a, a neutered offense that doesn't throw me anything more than five yards down the field. How am I going to increase my value? That's really what I'm looking for here. He's not going to get that in Pittsburgh. There's no way for him to assume that he will, uh, considering what their quarterback situation is. So very long-winded rant short. I apologize. But, uh, no, there's no way he's coming back now. And I know I said that last year, but it's even worse now than it was last year. You know I love it when you rant. You know I love it. I think you're lying to me. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I have to add, just to add, to echo and piggyback on your point, he only has 15 receptions this year. I mean, compare that to Najee Harris, who has 28 receptions, almost double. Najee has more reception yards as well, 198. I mean, he only has 15 receptions and 129 receiving yards in, in what was it, five games. So he wasn't didn't being even get a target in the end zone. I, I just didn't give him the ball. Yeah, I mean, yeah he just wasn't what, utilized. What do you want him to do? I mean, the Washington's thing, numbers are, are competitive with Juju's. I mean, <laughs> the, the other thing with, with Juju is Juju is 24 years of age, and you never that never really lines up where you have a guy with five years experience that's only 24. Yep. Yep. So Juju and, and is he blew young. his opportunity for that long extension by signing with the Steelers. Right. So with that being said, Juju's somebody's going to get a really quality individual and player with Juju Smith-Schuster at 24 years of age, plays a lot of good football with with a very good quarterback and a very good team. So you're going to get a 24-year-old veteran. Um, And so to Felicia, what's up, Felicia? To Felicia's questions, I, I just guess he didn't fit. I mean, I don't know. We don't know that answer, but it was mysterious that Juju's role was diminished and minimized. So because Neil gave his number, I'm going to give my number to give the recap of the Broncos game first. And I'm going to give you two numbers just because Neil did his Neil thing. Uh, but my numbers, um, I'm just going to give two two numbers real quick. And it's the number 25 and the number 35 from the Denver Bronco game. And 25 is the number of attempts, pass attempts that Ben Roethlisberger had. And 35 is the number of carries in which the Steelers had as a running game. Uh, and it's probably like 34. I think one of those carries might have been a wide read. might have been Juju on an end around. And so Juju <laughs> was the one. Carries. Yeah, Juju was probably the one not running back um, carry. And we talked about the approach the Steelers had, and I heard some rumors around it. Matt Canada removed some options from the, whatever, the RPOs. I don't know. I wasn't, didn't really read it seriously this week. I didn't think it was legitimate. So I kind of looked at it really quick. And that was the result of why they ran the ball so much. But I think what it symbolizes is that Pittsburgh has found a way offensively in how they want to approach it. And I think it's like we said on Sunday. This is what they wanted to intended to do at the start of the season. I thought you saw in that Denver Bronco game 
the best that that offensive line has played in the run game in a while. Um, I, I thought both guards looked especially well, or especially good in that game in the run game. And, and, and I thought it was the, the rookie center's best game as well. Um, they played with a lot of physicality. It looked like a lot of attitude. And in terms of just numbers, the 25 and the 35, given Ben Roethlisberger's age and fragility and the type of injuries that he's dealing with, I think this is the Steelers' best approach moving forward is to lean on the running game. Whether that works or not, I think that's their only option and their best option to succeed as an offense. We talked about how sustainable that is. We don't necessarily think it's sustainable. But if you need Ben to be Ben and put the cape on in, in short parts and stints in games, I think he can do that. I think that's fine. Um, you don't need Ben to do that game in and game out like he used to. I think he just can't do it at this point. So I, I love the 25 and the 35 in that game. And I think the Steelers gave a clear glimpse as to how they're going to approach offense moving forward in this season. Can we get into the whole Matt Canada scheme thing with Juju? Yeah, let's do that. What, what, player, is, what player is benefiting by any kind of scheme that Matt Canada is running? They uh, they haven't figured out a scheme. They don't really have tendencies. They have a quarterback that is doing what he instinctively does on the field that he probably isn't as physically capable of doing um, as much. We did see in the Denver game, we did see something that would look like a, a coordinated set of plays put together in concert with each other, with the idea in mind that they will succeed because of what they've done uh, previously. In other words, if you run this formation on this play, the next series, you run the same formation and run it a different way or put in a different vari variation of it. That's scheming. That's, a, 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 that's how you package plays is what that's called. Um, you most often do that within your script, which is your first 12 to 15 plays of a game, depending on the coordinator, depending on the offense. This is a team that has failed miserably in its script for four games and did an excellent job of it in their fifth game. Against Denver, That they moved the ball much more efficiently. They did things in a much more concerted manner than they have in, in previous games. You saw more of what Matt Canada is drawing up for them to do, mostly because they didn't get stuck in second, third, and long every yeah. down. I mean, yeah. that, that's The reason you don't see much from them is because they didn't run many plays. They really didn't. They were cut right. off 30% of their plays almost every game because they, they didn't execute well. You saw penalties on the offensive line, which didn't go away exactly. I think Chooks had two in the first half. But you, you saw those penalties. You saw dropped passes. You saw sacks. All these things that changed that script. And because of that, they didn't get the opportunity – to put the things down that they wanted to against Denver. They did. And that that's why we should be excited about that. That's a really good thing to this point. It's not a question of whether or not anybody fits a scheme. They're, they're not good enough to have a scheme yet. They're, they're not at that point. So they're, they're going to get there. And we saw much of that, I think against Denver and they have an excellent opportunity to do it against Seattle on Sunday. So we're going to build to that. It's a good thing, uh, but it, it, you know, I've said this a thousand times. If you've if you've listened to to me ramble on the way that I am this morning, and I can't stop for some reason, it's mostly that this team has to grow. They have to come together. They need practice. They need reps, 
And sometimes getting better means you suck for a little while. You got to see why this doesn't work and build into something else. We will see better days from the offense. It's just going to be kind of touch and go here for a little bit. What's your number? Do you have a number outside your outside of the tight end numbers? Do you have a number? Um, I was pretty heavily invested in the yards per catch, generally speaking, of the entire team, with the exception of Chase Claypool, which is the, the connecting part I wanted to get into as far as Juju's importance. Look at what happened to the team's offense when Juju went down. Juju went down with a carry, keep in mind. I'll contend till the day I die that Juju's a better running back than, than Kalen Balaji is. But now he's out and you don't have him anymore. What happened then, Lance? They moved Claypool inside of the slot. Claypool all of a sudden now is not a basic training catch guy anymore. He doesn't have to be outside the numbers going up for balls over cornerbacks that outplay him on, on a snap-to-snap basis. What they did with them was get him the ball short in space, which seems really fitting because that's what they do with everybody else. But Claypool has the ability to elude guys off the line. Not that Johnson doesn't, but Johnson's making most of his damage down the field. They didn't have an inside guy making those plays. They didn't throw the ball in the middle of the field because they weren't guys in the middle of the field. Juju, for whatever reason, wasn't at that depth. They, they didn't send him there. But when they started sending Claypool there, you saw the whole offense open up. Ben had a lot more opportunity to make plays in the second half than he has any other time this season. And Claypool came up with two big ones. A lot of that was getting back to the scheme concept, their ability to recognize when uh, the Broncos defense was in base, which means they, they have their standard uh, personnel out on the field, which is a 3-4. They had twins on either side, which is known as a two-by-two. Two. So you got two receivers on either side of the line of scrimmage. Ben saw that the Broncos were in base, motioned a guy over to the left, or over to the right, I should say. What that did is it forced Denver to move to the right side to cover the three receivers that they had there. But they don't have the personnel for that out on the field. So what happened? Vaughn Miller had to be covering Chase Claypool off the line. And I'm sure he had help inside, uh, or he certainly played it like he had help inside because he, he dogged that play. Claypool got the ball in space, outran them 60 yards down the field, and set up a touchdown. They have not been able to do that by and large because for whatever reason, they, are, they weren't setting up plays for Juju the way that they set up plays for Claypool. Ben hit Claypool for a 20-yard touchdown on a post pattern a little bit later in the game on something very similar. He's on the inside, he's in the slot, and he's running a, a simple post down the field, and they're getting him the ball, giving him a chance to make a play. That's a huge difference from whatever it is that they were doing with Juju uh, to how they ended that game. You're going to see a lot of that against Seattle. I promise you that. Claypool in the slot is going to be probably the, the, the most valuable offensive change they make this season short of sitting chooks for Bison legend Joe Haig, which doesn't seem to be happening. Well, that's, that's a nice way to transition into the Seahawks breakdown. When you look at the Seahawks, I think the big thing in the title of this show is will the Steelers win turn into two in a row against the Russell Wilson with Seahawks. I think the big thing that jumps out when you look at this game is that they don't have Russell Wilson. Uh, let Russ Cook is off, or excuse me, not off. He's injured for the next couple of weeks killing my fantasy team as well. So let Russ Cook is out and you're starting Geno Smith. And I, I think the two things that you see when you look at this Seattle team is they're explosive offensively. You're talking about a team that's number one in the National Football League in yards per attempt at 9.3 yards per attempt, which is an insane number. And that speaks to the two wide receivers in Lockett and Metcalf. 
And you're talking about a team that averages 6.5 in terms of yards per play, which is fourth in the National Football League, which again suggests they're a very explosive team. Looking at, and let's stay with the Steelers' offense against the uh, Seahawks' defense, you're talking about a defense that's a highly a high zone team, a ton of cover three, a little bit of quarters, but just a, a very uh, – and I don't want to say uh, – let me, let me pick my words carefully. They're a predictable defense in the sense that you're going to get – the look that you see is the look you're going to get. There's not – they're not a heavy disguise defense. When you look at them on film, oh, they're playing cover three. You know, they're dropping um, – what's the safeties? Jamal Adams. They'll, they'll drop Jamal Adams into the hole. Um to play closer to the line of scrimmage. I mean, it's just very defined, very obvious. Uh, P- P- keep in mind, though, Legion of Boom was exactly that. They just had yes. studs playing those positions, and they don't so much now. They, they want Adams to be that, but he's not. Adams is a liability in coverage. They're going to stick with with uh, cover three all the way. You you know that going into a game. They don't change. that. That's not Pete Carroll's philosophy. And there, there's something – you know, I, I think genius about that. I, you don't have to try to outthink your opponent on every play. If you do something well, continue to do it. Make them beat you at doing it. Um, they're getting beat doing it now. It, it's more of a personnel issue than anything, but they just dumped one of their cornerbacks. Um, they clearly weren't happy with with uh, uh, Kilo Witherspoon. You remember him when the Steelers acquired him a while ago and doesn't Ooh. play anymore? Ooh. Seattle wasn't happy with the way that he was playing. It, it's a scheme fit it issue with that like more the than Steelers anything. Steelers aren't happy with the way he's yeah, playing he's but any- <laughs> probably not all that great it's pretty simple it gave them a, it gave the Steelers an opportunity to get rid of their fifth round pick and you know how that is Lance the longer they right. have a fifth round pick the worse they are that's their philosophy they hate fifth round picks they want veterans for fifth round picks even guys that won't play for them but let me ask you this so you're going to get defined coverages you're going to see a ton of cover three and I think the last the, Ben has played fairly well against Seattle the last couple of times uh, played well uh, last time they were in Heinz Field, and, and and he went up. Him and Russell Wilson just had a duel up in what Seattle a, yeah, a couple a of years, and they both went nuts. Both of given the predictability, given the predictability of their coverage, given what we've talked about with Claypool moving in the slot, how do you think the Steelers will attack uh, this this defense, uh, particularly using eleven personnel? Because I think we're going to see, you know, I think you know the NFL always is a league where. You know, some person's injury is another person's opportunity. I think the one, uh, you know, the player who benefits the most, I think, is James Washington, who only has nine catches on the year for like 99 yards. How how do they attack this um, this Seahawks secondary and this defined cover three? And what personnel groupings and personnel or players do you think they'll do it with? Because I think they're going to do – I think they're going to put Claypool in the slot like we talked about and I think they're going to have James Washington play more as a Y, uh, excuse me, not as that Y, but as that uh, that Z receiver um, in this game. So, so give me a breakdown of how you think the Steelers will approach it offensively going up against the Seattle defense. Here's what I want out of the Steelers, and I think Ben Roethlisberger uh, got tossed a softball to answer the exact question that he wanted to answer at the time. They mentioned Pat Fryermuth getting the ball to Fryermuth more often. Ben went out of his way to say, that's on me. I've got to do that. The typical Ben stuff. I've got to get him more involved. What that really means to me is that Fryermuth is going to be on the weak side. And what they're going to do is dare 
Seattle to move Jamal Adams either down to yeah. cover Fryermuth or to keep him back. Because if he's back, they're sending Claypool his way <laughs> the entire game. I guarantee you that. Adams is a disaster in coverage. He really is not good. And they, they paid him a lot of money to be a very one-dimensional player. He's a linebacker. He's not, he doesn't play like a safety down the field. The Steelers have that opportunity within their offense to attack a, a, a pretty weak link, um, in my opinion, anyway, on, on Seattle's defense. If Friarmouth, and call this a run-pass option, they can do that uh, with Friarmouth going short in and around Adams. But they're going to leverage Adams. He's going to be the force in their passing game. The run game, Adams is a beast. He gets after it. He's he's very quick, athletic. He's aggressive. You worry about him against the run. I don't think they're going to be able to run very much, but this is going to be a, a high-volume target game for Chase Claypool, and it's going to be a high-volume throw game for Ben Roethlisberger. To me, what you're going to do is look to really attack um, the middle of the field, the deeper third of the field against a cover-three defense based on where Jamal Adams is shifting. You know, if, if you are able to go in front of him with the tight end on the weak side, you or not the weak side, on the back side of their their trips formation, which I think they're going to run a lot of, you can get away with that. You can run Claypool over toward Adams in his zone, make Adams commit one way or another. I think they're going to do a lot of that, which is to say not every play, but five, six times in the game is a lot for, for an NFL uh, package of plays. They're going to, to do a good amount of that um, Sunday, in my opinion. Yeah, because I think when you look at that defense, they do give up a lot. They give up a lot of big plays. Um, so that lends itself to uh, protection. And so, you know, in looking at my number of 25 and 35, just to go back to that real quick, you're suggesting clearly in your breakdown that this is going to change. Like this is not going to be the game in which the Steelers run. And, and, and I would agree. And I, I, I would agree. I, I think this might be the time where, you know, it might be a little premature as to, you know, what they're did this shifting of identity because I think in a game where you have a an absolute weak player in terms of coverage in a scheme that's highly defined, that I think you have to get after it. I mean, you, you you have to go ahead and get after it and, and you have to attack it. Um, do you think that the Steelers will be able to pass protect it consistently enough to be able to sustain what we think is going to be possibly a high volume, high passing game um, or high I, attempts? I think here's here's the main concern that the biggest thing is, are they able to protect Ben Roethlisberger over over a in a game plan like that, like I'm suggesting, they have to be able to protect the passer. That's really kind of the, the, the main point I would imagine Seattle is going to prepare themselves for. For them, the game is going to be won or lost with their ability to get Roethlisberger on the ground, to get in his face. They have to have a pass rush from hell, basically. Um, and I, I think that's mostly going to be what Seattle has to do this season. And they haven't been all that successful at it. But with Wilson out, they're they're in significant trouble if they don't get pressure on the quarterback because their their secondary isn't particularly good. They have a their their big money guy is a liability, and they, there's no way they don't see that. So for me, if Pittsburgh is able to cover, and me saying that that Fryermuth acting as kind of an option um, that creates the challenge of protecting with five and a running back, which is what they're going to have to do. 
uh, if you're playing trips, you put three receivers on the side or, or however it is they're going to do that, you're protecting with five and a running back. So it, it's not like that that strategy has worked out well for them this season. We've seen the Steelers try to protect with that. And they haven't done a very good job of it. And you can understand why, but we've seen flashes of them being able to do it. And the more uh, the the more times that they're faced with these kind of dire kinds of plans, these really risky types of plans, the better at it they're going to get. And I think it's a good time to, to challenge the Steelers protection scheme um, to come up with a way to protect Roethlisberger long enough to release the ball down the field. It, it, to me, it's either going to be a, a 400 yard game for Ben, or it's going to be a five sack game for Seattle one way or another. And the winner is going to be the one that that, that stat emphasizes the most. That's interesting because when you look at the Seattle sack numbers, I think they have 10 on a year equal to the Steelers. Um, when you look at their adjusted sack rate number, that is the number that's pretty average, which means if you're looking at an adjusted sack rate, it's just a percentage of time that you get sacks per pass attempts. And, and they're pretty average in that. They rank fairly low in the National Football League in that stat, which suggests that they don't get cons- consistent and sustained pressure but I like the way you broke that down. This this is a game of pass rush versus pass protection, given the fact that uh, the type of defense and the type of coverages they play and the fact that I think they're going to unleash and put Claypool in the slot to really weaponize his ability and try to – and I think it's genius to get him some clean releases to to not make him just a combat catch guy but a guy that can play in some clean areas and some clean spaces and allow him to essentially accelerate and be the guy laying the hit and laying the punishment when he's running through voids in the field at top speed, because we saw that people did not want to tackle him uh, last Sunday when he had a head of steam, because at at the end of the day, he's a big physical wide receiver um, and a very physical player maybe not at the catch point, but after he's caught it and he's running, he's a load to tackle. Let's switch to the side of the ball of the Steelers defense versus the Seattle Seahawks offense. I talked about the Seattle offense being very explosive in terms of yards per attempt at 9.3 first in the National Football League and 6.5 in terms of yards per play. As explosive as they are, they're not a – they were only averaging about, I think, about 24 points per game, which put them about midway through the National Football League. And that was with, and that's 13th, in fact, and that was with Russell Wilson. Now you have Geno Smith playing. I think the clear advantage is the Steelers' defense against this Seattle offense. Do you think this is a game where the Steelers will see a, a large number of rush attempts and is this the game where it's a big boy double chin strap game because you've got a backup quarterback? And if you can stop that run game, you do everything. You give yourself the best opportunity to win. I think every team wants to do that every game. I, I think there's something to be said about the, the low risk proposition of, of holding on to the ball and gaining five yards of carry. Uh, I don't think Seattle is going to be able to do that. I think uh, it, Pittsburgh's rush defense is going to be probably the strength of the unit for a, a little while, at least. We haven't seen great things from the pass rush the last couple of weeks. Pittsburgh's going to try to get after them, but Geno Smith, he's a veteran. Um, you appreciate that, at least. He's used to the stadium, as Mike Tomlin would say. I don't think they're overly concerned with 
protecting him so much. But throw to throw, he's not the most talented guy in the world. And I think with that, they're going to have to limit their passing game to some degree. But all bets are off. If they're not running the ball well, that doesn't work. Then it doesn't work. They're not going to continue to do it throughout the game. Um, Playing in a primetime atmosphere like that, they're going to want to, to be able to control the momentum of the game. That means running the ball. I don't know how well that's going to work. So from Pittsburgh's perspective, uh, being able to stop that run and letting Geno Smith have to release the ball third and long, it's not a unique formula. You know, you kind of want to do that with every team. But I I don't think Seattle is going to be especially in trouble if they are not able to run the ball. So I think Pittsburgh, in in their mentality, always is stop the run. Um, They have the horses to to pull the, the pass rush sled if and when they get to those downs. But they have to win the early downs to set that up and make Smith throw the ball. If they do that, they're going to get sacks. They're going to get takeaways. Those things are obviously beneficial, and those are the types of plays that you make to win those those home primetime games. You, you have the, the energy. You have the momentum. Knock them out early, put them on their heels, and make them throw for the majority of the game. Seattle is not going to succeed doing that. I'm not sure if Lance dropped off or what exactly happened, but – my thought, and maybe you guys can weigh in on this as well, Geno Smith, there's Lance, Geno Smith is not capable of playing the way he did uh, in, in Seattle's last game when he came in for the injured Russell Wilson. They're not going to get that level of performance from him uh, for four quarters. But you also do see that he's capable of doing it. So they're going to put him into a position to succeed as, as well as they can. And really, we're talking T.J. Watt, we're talking Alex Highsmith, Mel Ingram, these guys are going to have to get after uh, Smith early, keep him in the pocket, make him throw the ball or put him on the ground, one thing or the other. Don't let him escape. And really a a contained, disciplined effort to move him back in the pocket and not let him escape. I want to blame Samuel Orr for those technical difficulties. Uh, I read his comment and it made my mouth shift. And I jumped out of the studio when Samuel Orr wrote Steelers are and will be at best a mediocre team this year. Hard to see them beating Cleveland or Baltimore even once should beat the should beat Seattle. But so what? Uh, thank you, Samuel, for jogging me so much. And, and, and I just jarred by the comment and I, and I had to jump out real quick and jump back in. When you look at Seattle's offense, even with Russell Wilson, they were only, uh, you know, getting 104 yards a game on offense in terms of running the football, and in terms of yards per attempt, it was 4.5, which was 10th in the National Football League. So, they're an average rushing team at best, even with Russell Wilson. I think what you said, Neil, and it's prediction time. Uh, I think it really sets up for the case of, you know, this is, you know, like we talked about the NFL being lots of ebbs and flows. A lot of injuries. It, it, it is definitely a continuum. It's a complete story. They're catching Seattle at the right time with a backup quarterback on the road on a Sunday night before a bye. If you're talking about a team being extra motivated to get a couple of days off after a rest and not having to go up against Russell Wilson, it, it's this game. Um, I, I think I love the way you laid it out. If you stop the run and put the game in Geno Smith's hands, and that's pretty much the strategy anytime you go up against the backup, they can eat. Those tackles aren't very good. Um, see, you know, the games that I've watched, San Francisco was killing them. Um, 
you know, the Rams were getting after him, but you know, they have Superman on that team and the Rams get after everybody. Um, they're not good. Their offensive line pass protection is shaky. And you're right. If you can keep them in, in, in the correct down and distance on third down, you can really eat and you might be able to eat with just four and not have to do anything exotic from a blitz perspective. Uh, this is just a diminished team without Russell, without Russell Wilson. So, I think my pick is clear. I think I'm picking the Steelers in this game. I'm picking the Steelers in this game to win 24-16. I think Seattle scores a touchdown and a few field goals. Um, But I like the Steelers to win 24-16 in the game, 24-16, 24-13. But I think the Steelers will win uh, this game somewhat comfortably, but I think they will win. I like them to hit 30 this week. Ooh. As weird as that is, I like him to hit 30. And I will I will fully admit this is coming from the same place that told me they were going to have an offensive outpouring for their home opener, which didn't are you, happen. Are you sexy kneeling? I think I, honestly, I think Seattle is the team probably that's sexy tanking more than anybody. I mean, their 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 cap position is it looks pretty good for next year. They have a quarterback who didn't really seem to buy into the direction of the team last year. I said last year at the time, the guy that the, the guy the Steelers are going to trade for would be Russell Wilson, not uh, Aaron Rodgers. As fun as that is to talk about, um, at the same time, I'm not sure they're really in a position to do either one of those things. But Seattle, they're they're struggling and they're playing a, a division that's just as good as the AFC North is, if not better. And I don't think they're good enough on the road in prime time without Russell Wilson, with their first game without Russell Wilson, to put up much of anything. I think Geno Smith is, frankly, a turnover waiting to happen. I think Pittsburgh can get three of those. I think they can win field possession for field position for most of the game. And with that, they're going to put up points. We've, we've seen it. I think they have the opportunity to do that, uh, like I said, with Claypool coming out of the slot. They're going to make a couple splash plays on offense and defense. And they're going to end up around 31. I, I don't think Seattle scores all that much. Um, 31-20 is what I like. How do you think Seattle gets to that 20? What does that 20 look like that? Is that from uh, uh, sustained drives? Is that, a, is that a big play here or there? How do you think Seattle gets to the 20? I, I think it's the NFL. I think that, by and large, um, offense is – it's hard to not score in this NFL anymore at this point in the season. Um, you have to be significantly hampered to not score. And a lot of things have to go against you. I think obviously either team, if there's a bunch of injuries, you're not going to score much, but I think they'll get 20 is not a good number offensively anymore. You know, that that's, that's, that's a problem. You have great place kickers nowadays. You're going to have a a clear fair night in Pittsburgh. They're going to be able to kick. So with that, it, it's one busted tackle here and there that sets up three points. You do that a couple times and your standard one, two touchdowns, they'll be able to get to 20. I'm not, I'm, I don't think that's a failure of the Steelers um, defense, depending on how the game would turn out at that point. But I, I don't think it's too much of a problem for them to get that. Um, they have playmakers. Lockett can play. We've seen that. Metcalf can play. We've seen that. They, they can get the ball to those guys to make a, a chunk play right. here and there, flip the field a little bit, at least set up a field goal. If not, you know, take it the distance from there. But uh, they're, they're capable of doing that. You got any pet peeves? I thought I had a pet peeve for this week, but I, but I, but I guess I don't. Maybe I'll just shift to, you know, something that I used to do back in the day with, with the yeah, I said it 
Um, but I don't have a pet peeve, really. Do you have a pet peeve, Neil? I, I am full of pet peeves, Lance. I'm a walking pet peeve. You are a outwardly, walking. and I'm sure people have it toward me as well. <laughs> you are a walking pet peeve. Uh, I guess my yeah, I said it uh, is just when I look at this Steelers, and maybe I'll, maybe I'll save that. We'll, we'll we'll save that for next week because the Steelers are on a buy, and uh, you know we'll have some sexy creative programming for next week, considering uh, we will not be talking about a game. Not sure if we'll have Neil on uh after the game because of the late nature we'll see uh maybe uh cranky Kulong will make a, a appearance uh, I'll, be, uh, I'll be honest with you lance the state that i was in sunday night after what was the longest day in nfl history this was one of my pet peeves by the way 9 30 a.m kick in london between the dolphins and the jaguars followed a 9 30 a.m kick between the falcons and the jets last week for my job, I have to be at least somewhat in, involved with those, uh, with the process of those games, working with the editors, editing content, stuff like that. Sunday night, I'm going to be a zombie, essentially. Do you want me on the air at 11.30 Eastern, midnight Eastern? Yes. Hopefully okay. I can. If that's the case, I, I, I will. will. I promise you, if the game doesn't go well, it, it's, it's going to be... Neil after dark because oh, I'm not oh, going to yes. I do want hashtag. It's a really, really long day. Watching four NFL games back to back to back to back. The last one being a Steelers game. And if it's a loss, I'm, I'm not going to be in a good mood. Oh, yeah. I do want a hashtag Neil after dark. Big up to Christian or excuse me, Christopher McCarthy for hopping on the program. That's a new name, I believe. If not, I apologize, Christopher. Uh, the notion that the Steelers ain't going to get better when two it returns is nonsense. Yeah, they'll, they'll, they'll definitely get better. And, and that's something that we'll talk about next week because I think that's one of the big mysteries hanging over the season is when will two it get back? But I, I think Christopher is right. At least defensively, they will be appreciably better. But one thing I guess I, I, I want to mention before we get off the program, and this is just a bit of appreciation and just to give a particular player some shine. And, and maybe you can speak to it, Neil. Uh, but but Cam Hayward, is uh, he might be having his best season. Yeah, absolutely. He, he's having his best season. He, he's playing incredible football. And if you guys get a chance – um, if you're, you're not, if you're bored, if you're not doing anything, get your popcorn, get your favorite beverage or your favorite snack, get close to the TV and watch Cam <laughs> Hayward just do things ungodly to offensive linemen. It is, he is, I, I mean, he is, he's playing fantastic football. Speak to how well uh, Cam is playing this year. Cam is dominating from multiple positions on a snap-to-snap basis, which is not something you can say about anybody except maybe three players in the game. He is at a defensive player of the year level. I'm sure that you know that'll be decided by sacks the way it always is. But Hayward is playing easily. This is probably the best defensive season we've seen a player have since probably Harrison in 2008, which is one of the best all-time in franchise history. He is single-handedly shutting down what he's doing. Keep in mind, he's playing next to something called Isaiah Bugs. He's playing something next to called Henry Mondu. Tuit isn't out there. He's not getting it, 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 Watt's been hurt. He doesn't Bush has been hurt. 
he hasn't had the support that he's had in the past. And he's had to put the defense on his back, and he's done that, and then some. The reason they're competitive in a lot of these games is because the defense doesn't break uh, fully, as they probably should. Their defensive line is as thin as it gets, and Hayward has been carrying all of it. So what, what's interesting to me is a lot of the recognition that you're seeing go around is because pro football focus is the only outlet that's going to be able to, to acknowledge that. So for all the people that hate pro football focus because they don't credit Joe Schobert the way that he should, or they're at least reasonably grading Minka Fitzpatrick, who's been bad this season, by the way, outside of week one, he's he hasn't played well at all. Hayward is the guy who's consistently grading out from them very, very well. And my opinion, they're, they're dead on balls right about it. He's been incredible every snap of this season. Uh, once again, adding to uh, what what's a reasonable legacy in my mind is one of the most underrated players of his era. He's been that good throughout his career. Um, it would minus the, the first two years where he might not have played all that much, but since 2013 on Hayward has played at an all pro level and this might be his best season yet. Yeah. Kudos to Hayward. He's playing fantastic football, but with that listeners, we are going to go ahead and conclude the program. Neil, as always, want to thank you for your efforts. Want to thank everybody on the live chat who hopped in. Want to thank everybody that I've been interacting with on Twitter for supporting the show, the new subscribers. Big up to everybody who's given us love on the show and giving us some support. And with that, we're going to conclude the program. And as always, tune in, tell a friend, and subscribe.